Do you know a woman who is driving positive change, growth, or innovation in her organization or community? The second annual Success Women of Influence Awards are underway. So whether a friend, a family member, or peer, give the recognition she deserves. The Success Women of Influence Awards honor, celebrate, and empower the extraordinary women whose contributions have impacted their industries and their communities, and the personal and professional lives of those in their world. Visit success.com slash W-O-I to nominate the women of influence in your life today. If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, beautiful human, and welcome to In the Details. I'm your host, Karen Allen. And thank you so much for hanging out again today, because listen, you are going to be amazed by this conversation. My guest today is Sean Swarner. He realized after defeating cancer twice, that's right, not once, but twice, that no challenge would ever be too great and no peak too high. See, his first goal was to crawl maybe eight feet from the hospital bed to the bathroom, but then he went on to redefine the impossible by climbing over 29,000 feet to the top of Mount Everest with one lung. (laughs) That's right. So from there, he stood atop the highest point on all seven continents. He also skied the North and South Poles, and he completed the Hawaii Ironman. Sean is the author of two books, Seven Summits to Success and Keep Climbing. And Sean is on a mission to help others reach their peak. Here we go. Let's get in the details with Sean Swarner. Sean, welcome. I appreciate that. That was a great intro. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad you liked it, but it was, it was all you. It was all you. <laughs> I'm very interested in your entire journey, but I think we need to start at the beginning. And I'm wondering, what was life like before any diagnosis, before any of these different life barriers that you've had to overcome? Can you paint a picture of what life was like for you when you were younger and what your dreams and aspirations looked like? Absolutely. It's it's kind of funny. You're like, let's let's go back. And I was thinking, well, my mom and my dad got together. And then nine months later, like, you don't want to go back that far. We don't have to go back that far. (laughs) (laughs) So I I literally was your normal Midwest young man growing up in Ohio. Like my my backyard was a cornfield or a bean field, depending on the season. And I would go out there as a little kid and bend over the stalks and make my little fort, you know, in I would be a little different because I don't want to say I wouldn't get in trouble or I wouldn't do anything to get in trouble. I would be smart enough to figure out, okay, that got me in trouble the first time. Let's figure out a way to not get caught this time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're always adventurous. <laughs> I was adventurous. Absolutely. In fact, growing up, one of my nicknames was Nature Boy. Interesting. Always, always outside, always loving everything. In fact, I uh, had a little pop up, like pop tent, you know, it's like um, the two little uh, poles in the front. And then I think two little strings on each side and I'll sleep in my backyard. Wow. So you're not so far off from what you probably dreamed and imagined your life would be as an adult. Anyway, you're going to be outdoors one way or the other. You know, yes, but I also do love the the comfortable down bed of like, you know, the four seasons. And (laughs) so I would say it's my branding. If I would have to put a tag on it would be rugged luxury. How's that? That sounds great. (laughs) Sign me up. It actually sounds like glamping, which is kind of what I would be looking forward to. uh, It's great. I I used to love that too. And I, in fact, I just got back from my 24th trip up Kilimanjaro and that is glamping. We sleep on cots and everything. (laughs) And your first diagnosis came at at 13. So while you were outside and you were building forts and, you know, living the life of a a young man, all of a sudden you were hit with this, I feel like adult size life situation. How did you handle that? You know, it's, it's really interesting when something like that hits you, you know, completely unexpectedly, especially something like cancer. I, I showed no symptoms, no night sweats, no swelling, no, no anything. The only way they found the cancer was because of a, a knee injury I suffered playing basketball. 
you know, growing up, I was a swimmer. I was, I was an out, I ran cross country track. I pole vaulted, you know, I, I did like everything. Right. And I suffered that knee injury, which made every other joint in my body to go so haywire. I swallowed up in a day and looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And mom and dad were like, okay, there's something wrong, something going on in his body that's causing this reaction to go out of control. So that's the only way they discovered that I had the, the, the first cancer because they stuck me in the local hospital in Willard, Ohio, where they started treating me for what they thought was pneumonia. But I'm sure, as you know, you can't cure cancer by sucking on a nebulizer. I wasn't getting any better. But being in the eighth grade, I was getting all the attention, you know, from like the cheerleaders would come in and give me balloons and flowers. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is great. I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. Right? This is awesome. But then they pulled mom and dad out of the hospital room into the hallway. And that was the first time the C word came up. Uh, my doctor goes, you know, do you know of any oncologists? I think we have a bigger problem here. So that's when they stuck me in Columbus, Ohio, did a number of tests, bone marrow, you name it, everything. That's when I was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And like I was saying, when you get diagnosed with something like that, when something traumatic hits your life, oftentimes you don't have a choice in what's happening, but I had a choice in how I reacted to it. And did you know that though, at 13, once you heard the C word that you were going to be able to own your choice to this thing that you actually couldn't control? No. So it took a while. In fact, my parents initially didn't tell me, hey, Sean, you have cancer because my step-grandmother passed away from, from cancer three months before I was diagnosed. And she was, she was a smoker. So she ended up passing away from lung cancer. And my parents didn't want me to associate cancer with death. So they said, hey, Sean, you're sick, you know, but we're going to do everything we can to get you through it. And then that, that planted the seed mentally. I was like, okay, great. You know, let's, let's tackle it. Let's, let's, let's get on with this so I can get back to my, my normal life. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really develop the mindset until about three months into the treatment. When I remember waking up in the morning and going into the bathroom and looking in the mirror and not even being able to recognize myself. Mm. You know, I was, I was, I was 60 pounds overweight. My hair would just, I could go like this and chunks of hair would come out because of the chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. And when I looked at myself in the mirror, I was like, where did Sean go? Like, I, I felt like I was a 60 or 70 pound overweight troll who should be hiding under a bridge somewhere because I was embarrassed at how I looked. Like there was nothing left. There was no hope. There was no desire to move forward. So I remember hopping into the shower and you know, the, the norm, normally the, the water hits your hair and kind of soaks in. But in 20 minutes when I was in the shower, I remember losing all my hair. It all fell out, gone. And I remember collapsing on my hands and knees, pulling, and, and the water was rising up in the shower. And I had to pull these chunks of hair out of the drain so the water could go down. And I'm on my hands and knees sobbing. You know, no hope, no nothing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm getting ready for school. What are my friends doing while they're getting ready for school? They're worried about what? Being popular. They're worried about, you know, how they're going to make it from this class to this class. They're worried about bumping into their, their crush of the day. Um, they're worried about looking perfect for, for school and being in the popular cliques, like I mentioned. Flashback to that that 13-year-old young man who's 70 pounds overweight on his hands and knees sobbing. That stuff didn't matter to me. You know, and, and that's when I, I, I thought about having the right mindset of I didn't want to focus on not dying. I wanted to focus on living. You know, and, and it's it, it's amazing because if if you look at it from a, a, a practical standpoint, if you're walking down the street and you tell yourself, don't trip, don't trip. You're going to fall on your face. Yeah. You pull it in, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're standing there and you tell yourself, stand tall, walk strong. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine what would happen if I kept focusing on not dying as opposed to living. So that's, that's the first place where the mental strength and the mental prowess came into play. I'm just imagining, you know, my, my son is 12. And uh, he's certainly gone through some hardship in, in his young life. Um, but this right here, the way that you were able to notice 
the difference of where you put your focus and your attention and how that would impact not just how you feel about yourself, but how you get through that. I mean, I, you were ahead of your time. I, did you know that you were ahead of your time? Were you, are you the oldest kid? Like there's something about you that's like, how at 13 did you realize things that people are still trying to figure out in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond, which is the strength of our mindset? You know, if you're in a situation like that and you literally have no choice, it's either fight for your life or give up and die. Yes. So I, I was forced, I was going to say, not, not necessarily to mature because I'm still not mature, but I was forced to grow up. Yeah. You know, and, and it was my choice. It was my choice to start seeing things a little bit differently because every night, imagine you're going to bed night after night after night, being terrified to close your eyes because you don't know if they're going to open the next day or not. Mm, I can't imagine that grips my heart. So, I mean, what, what choice do you have? Do you go to bed every night thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow? Or do you go to bed thinking, you know, I'm really grateful for this, 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 and this that happened today? Sean, our, our walks of life are so, so different, radically different, yet they are so similar because everything you're talking about is exactly what happened to me when I found myself in a horrible situation that I would wish on no one. We'll just like blanket it as that, right? Same as you. And having that moment where I realized that I had no hope left, I felt completely hopeless. And then realizing that I had two choices in that moment that I could either give up or get up. It's something that I, I share a lot in my keynotes when working with people. And then that action of, of getting up, which is little by little, for me started in the same way as you just described at night when I felt really, really hopeless. And I would just say three things I was grateful for because I didn't want to fall asleep with all that negativity looming because it would make me sick. It would make me cry. It would make me feel all. So I was like, well, how can I control my feelings? How can I control what I'm looking And it? And sometimes this is what I believe so much. And thank you for sharing. It's just those small shifts. It's those little things that we can do that can make an enormous difference in how we experience life. Absolutely. I mean, so many people go through life focused on, I'd say this in my keynote presentations too, you know, so many people wake up and turn on the news. It becomes their MO because we, we human beings are creatures of habit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what do meteorologists do when they wake up in the morning? What do parents do when they wake up in the morning? What do Olympic athletes do when they wake up in the morning? They have a set pattern, you know, that works for who they are and where they are in life. If you want something different, do something different. So if, if you're negative and you're bookending your day, you, you start your day with the news, you end your day with the news, you're bookending your day on a negative note, wake up and tell yourself, literally, this is the best day ever because you're going you're gonna to make it that way. And then go to bed. I write down five things I'm grateful for. And then I continue journaling about one of them. Like I'm most grateful for blank because blank, which helps it come back to my personal core values, which go back to when I was fighting for my life. And now I know I want, you know, freedom. I want health. I want my family. And I thought, okay, I'm probably alive and fighting for my life because I could only imagine what my parents would go through if they lost their firstborn son. Right. Mm. It goes deep. It goes so, so deep. And I'm wondering now, again, we mentioned in your, your intro that you had two different, um, actually unrelated forms of cancer. So how was the second diagnosis different from the first one and your experience going through that only, I think you said it was three years later. So 13 was the first one and then 16 was the second. Yeah. It was just, just a few years later. And it, this time around, it was different because I was in remission from the first one. Everything was gone. Supposedly everything was gone. And you're right, this, the second cancer was completely unrelated to the first one. So it wasn't because a uh, secondary cancer from the chemotherapy, the medicine, whatever, it was a completely different cancer, separate. In fact, I'm the only person in history who's ever had Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma. This time around, they diagnosed me with a type of cancer that affects three out of a million people with a 6% prognosis. Meaning if you have a hundred people with this disease, 94 die. 
And the chances of me surviving both Hodgkin's and Askin's sarcoma, I, I did the math on this, it blew my mind, is equivalent to winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. Right. So it's, wow. it's, it's impossible. In fact, when I was, when they first found the cancer, they found a tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy where they thread a needle through my ribs to aspirate part of the tumor, to take out part of the tumor. They took out another lymph node in my chest. They put in a Hickman catheter, which is a permanent IV. They cracked open my ribs, removed the tumor, put a drainage tube in and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. Then I was also read my last rites and I was told that I had 14 days to live. At 16. At 16, I remember laying in the hospital bed and a man of the cloth comes in, starts reading me my last rites. And I look at my mom, I'm like, I'm, I'm not dead yet. Oh my and I, I looked at her, I was like, what is he doing here? And then the hospital wanted me to write out a living will. And I have a younger brother, three years younger than me. And I'm looking at my mom, you know, kind of with a sense of humor. I'm like, what does a hospital want? Isn't Seth going to get my hand-me-downs anyhow? Like, he's oh, going to come yeah. anyhow. Oh my gosh. And so how was it like going through, through that experience? How did you, how did you latch on to hope once again? Cause I imagine, you know, when we go through one thing, it's hard, but I've even met people who have gone through multiple losses in like a matter of weeks and it could be death of a loved one, or it could be death. And then there's a financial, or then there's this, and it really is overwhelming when you go through one after another. So going from that at 13 and then having another one just a few years later, what was your mentality like to find your way back to hope again? In all honesty, pardon my French was like, holy shit, I don't want to do this again. Yeah. Mm. I, I already went through the first one. My life's going to change again. I'm going to lose my friends, I'm going to lose my hair. I'm going to lose everything. My life, I, I looked at it as like God taking the, the great remote control on life and just hitting pause. Like your life's on pause. The rest of the world's going to continue on, Sean, but you're just going to be stuck here for a little bit. And I, I didn't want to do it. You know, initially I was thinking, I, I really, I, I don't know if I can. But then again, I, I got the support of, of my family, my friends, everybody rallied around me like, you can do this. And I think a sense of humor helped a lot. But I also utilized, and this is even before they did research on understanding how powerful vivid visualization is. Oh, oh, you know, I could spend a whole day talking about that. <laughs> tell, tell me how so, that helped you and influence your journey. This, this is really cool. So uh, when I had bad days where I was literally vomiting for like 36 hours straight. And also the second time around, I was in a medical, because the treatments were so harsh, I was in a medically induced coma for a year. I don't remember being 16, right? So I'd go in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I'd be released. So my counts would go higher, like my blood counts. You, you can't just go in and handle another onslaught of the, the, the chemical cocktail because it destroys every rapidly growing cell in your body, which is why you lose your hair. Then I would go back in after my body would recover. I'd go in Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. That would be one cycle. And that happened for a year and a half. And every time I was in the hospital, they would knock me out. But every time I had those bad days, I remember vividly visualizing myself swimming and completing the 50 meter breaststroke and coming out a champion. Like everything from the bubbles surrounding my ear when I dove in the water, um, even before that, leaning down against the, the starting block and feeling the sandpaper grit, like utilizing all of my senses, right? It, it was unbelievable. I did that for the first cancer. The second cancer, I also continued doing something similar where I visualized myself in my chemotherapy drip bag into, have you ever read Calvin and Hobbes? You know who that is? Yes. Yep. So one of his alter egos is Spaceman Spiff. And he's got his little tiger, they're flying around space. And I, I loved reading the, the Sunday comics. And I would pretend that I was like Spaceman Spiff, but in this microscopic spaceship in my chemotherapy drip bag, and I remember dripping into the clear plastic tube that was feeding into my body where the medicine was coming in. And I would, I would visualize myself laying in the hospital bed. I could see the hospital door to my left, the television playing, you know, God knows what worthless stuff on TV. And then my, my mom or my dad sitting in one of the um, lazy boy chairs and then the window of the hospital to my right. And I would remember being shot into my body 
And then all of these little microscopic, and remember, the 16 have a crazy imagination. So all these microscopic spaceships, hundreds of them collecting in the heart, right? That was like Grand Central Station. Like this is where we're all going to get launched out and go kill things. So I remember when it was my time, I would be shot out of my heart and I would chase around and I'd zip up and down and around and through my, my, blood, my blood vessels. And I would sneak up on the cancer and I would unload these missiles laden with chemotherapy, medicine, and all this good, healthy stuff. And it would destroy the cancer from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It works. It works. I did the same thing. We'll get there. I did the same thing with Everest and all the other mountains as well. Wow. Wow. I actually had another guest on Mary Morrissey and had such a good time talking to her about visualization because she was also given, I think, 90 days to live. Uh, She was very young and visualization helped her to get out of that. They literally said, we don't know how, how you healed yourself. We don't, we don't know how this happened. We don't, we have no answers at all. And it was before, you know, there were a lot of advances in just the medical world. And so they really didn't know, but I don't think there will ever no matter how many advances we make in the medical world, I don't think we will ever be able to fully understand just how powerful visualization is. Because whether it's healing you from something that is attacking your body, or whether it is healing your mindset from the different traumas of the past, or you know the different burdens that you carry, our mind is so powerful. And by activating visualization and really seeing what we want for our life, whether it is healing or whether it is you know getting to the top of a mountain, <laughs> whatever your mountain is, it helps. It absolutely activates something in us that the conscious mind by itself cannot reach. Absolutely. I, I think the, the subconscious of your mind is the powerhouse of the mind. Mm-hmm. And if if you look at that old uh, analogy of, you know, people say you are what you eat, but in, in reality, you are what you consume. Correct. Right. I could not agree from, more fully. <laughs> from, from every aspect, from the media, from social media, from your, 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 your significant others, from your friends, from your own mind, because you talk to yourself more than anybody else in the world. And are you building yourself up or are you deflating yourself? You need to pay attention to your internal dialogue because you have a choice to program your brain or it's going to be programmed by somebody else. By everything else, right? (laughs) By everything else. And so on the other side, can you describe that feeling of when you completed everything after, you know, the, the, I know from 13 to 16, I'm sure there was a lot in between, a lot of celebration, probably feeling good, you know, maybe on the other side of the diagnosis at 16 years old, what did that feel like? How did you feel? You know, it's, I wanted to just be normal. Mm. I wanted So you to weren't just, thinking about climbing Mount Everest as soon as you finished? <laughs> no, no. In fact, I went to college. I turned into Belushi from Animal House, right? I was reliving my, my, my high school life that I was taking from me. Like I was the guys swinging on parties, a frat, the frat uh, parties, drinking a beer and swinging on the, on the railings. And I was a party animal. I, I loved every bit of it, but I was also embarrassed about going through the cancers mm. at some point. So growing up in a small town, like I said, Willard, Ohio, have you heard of the, there are um, fundraisers for cancer called the Relay for Life? Yes. I've participated in a few. They're beautiful. They set up those luminaries right around the track or wherever you're walking. And the first lap is always dedicated and devoted to the survivors. So even my, and my mom put one together back at home in our high school track. And even though the entire town knew I was a survivor, I didn't, I, I didn't take that first lap. Mm. I didn't want to be labeled mm. as like a cancer survivor. I wanted to be labeled as Sean Swarner. Like I am who I am. But as time went by, and it's, it's, let me back up. It's also interesting because when you're going through the treatment, you have the support system, you have the structure, you have the charities, you have the group sessions or whatever they might be. You have the doctors, the nurses, the mom and dad, you have that safety net. But as soon as they say, hey, you're in remission, everybody else is just thinking, oh my God, that's fantastic. That you're, you're, go live your life. The first thought that I had was, well, how do I even take my first step? Mm. That safety net's gone. 
So everything that I had going through the treatment was, was comfortable. I became comfortable in the uncomfortable, but now I'm supposed to go live my life for the past, you know, six years. It's been a struggle going through my teen years. I'm like, okay, well, life is supposed to be a struggle. And then, hey, go go think about your future when literally my future for the past seven years was tomorrow, if I even had it. Right. Wow. What an adjustment. You don't think about that. No. So it took me a while to actually get to the point where I thought about a future. You know, I was, I was in college, started dating. And it's not it, like dinner conversation. Say we're on a date. And I'm like, oh, hey, you know, Karen, I, I'm a two-time terminal cancer survivor as you're eating a sandwich. Like, it, it doesn't work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you even bring it up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and when did you start new. to find that new, okay, I can think for the future. I can plan for the future. After college in grad school, I was working on my master's and my doctorate. I started off in college molecular bio thinking I was going to cure cancer and splice genes and, and play God and everything. And it was interesting because I was Belushi in Animal House. Who knew it would be difficult to pass organic chemistry and immunology if you don't study? Right? So, <laughs> so I switched to psychology and I actually I found a passion going back to that mind-body connection. And then I was I was accepted into a number of programs to work on my master's and my doctorate to be a psycho-oncologist, which is a psychologist for cancer patients, because as we know, it's not an individual disease. You know, the family goes through it, everybody. And that was the first time I was a thousand miles away down in Florida from Ohio. It was the first time that I realized I had this bag of issues that I've been dragging with me because I never stopped to look in the mirror and see beyond that ogre that I mentioned before. Now, now who am I looking at? It's someone completely different. However, I never opened and looked in to see what the cancer meant to me, you know, because you have to process that you have to go see. And I was like, okay, well, how do I want to move forward through this? And that's, I dropped out of school. I dropped out of, I was working like four jobs uh, as I was going and working my master's and doctorate and like, that doesn't work. So I, I, I stopped everything. I was like, I need me time. You know, and a lot of people say, well, you, you can't, uh, you know, I don't want to focus on me. I have to give back. Well, you can't pour from an empty cup. So I, I kept giving and giving and giving and I needed to take a time out. And that was the first time seven years after maybe mm. when I started thinking about it, mm-hmm. it took that long to process it because initially I just ignored it. Like I'm going to go and live my own life, you know, be normal. But when you go through something traumatic, you can choose how it changes you. And I didn't want to be normal. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a deep breath because I think that's something that we don't give our permission ourselves permission to do in this society. When we go through something really hard, we're ready to bounce back. We're yeah. ready to just get back in this, you know, they say like, get back in the saddle. And you have to heal from the things that have impacted your life that have changed who you are, change the way that you look at life and the way that you live. Because if you don't, you continue on this cycle of maybe feeling unfulfilled. There's a lot of different you know, ways that we can reach unfulfillment and apathy. But I do think that one of the ways we get there is when we haven't healed from the things that have radically changed us because we just haven't faced it. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody goes through something in their, in their lives. Mm-hmm. It's up to you to decide how you want to come out on the other end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so at what point did you decide to become an adventurer? <laughs> My brother, Seth, as I mentioned before, was graduating college right around the time I was going through this whole self-actualization, crazy, where the hell am I going type thing, mm-hmm. looking at where my journey, where my path in life was going to take me. He graduated college. He came down to Florida with me. And that's when we decided, okay, let's give back to the cancer community. And hey, we're not, we're not quite sure how. Like, well, you know, I've been gifted with a great mind and and a, a great body to do all the sports that I done, I have done. Like, why don't we utilize something like that and do something amazing to inspire others? Because cancer isn't always a death sentence. It can be an amazing journey. 
and you can come out. For me, cancer was one of the worst, if not the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but it's also the best thing that's ever happened to me based mm-hmm. on perspective. Mm-hmm. And I want other people to see that. Mm-hmm. So that's when we just kept doing research and more research and more research. And I was like, well, what's the highest platform in the world to scream hope? Mm-hmm. Like, well, Mount Everest. Like, yeah, but you have zero climbing experience. I'm like, but we can move from here to Colorado, you know, from Florida to Colorado where I am now and I can train. And literally in nine months, we got the sponsorship. Uh, when I first moved to Colorado, we lived out of the back of my Honda Civic and lived in a campsite for two months. My office was a payphone bank and in the library getting sponsorship. <laughs> That's what they really call toughing it. A payphone. Oh, man. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Pretend you're working for a company. Oh, hey, I got this idea. Well, yeah. What's your phone number? Um... <laughs> <laughs> and if somebody else answers, that's okay. They'll find me. <laughs> yes, right. So how did you start to train and prepare yourself mentally and physically for, for Mount Everest? You know, it's, it's interesting. It was very similar to how I overcame cancer. I was wondering if that was going to be in the fabric of this story. Please share. Absolutely. It's one step at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, one little thing at a time. How do people train for marathons? They don't go out on Thursday and run 26 miles. They start here and they run maybe a mile, maybe three miles. In fact, that you build up to it. You know, and, and Everest is, is at an altitude where jumbo jets level off and fly. And when I told people, doctors, when I told professional climbers, hey, I'm going to attempt climbing Everest with one lung, they're like, that's impossible. And then I I thought about Nelson Mandela. I was like, well, it always seems impossible until it's done. Mm -hmm. Right. So don't tell me something I can't do, which is just adding fuel to the fire. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to show you. You know, I'll find a way to make it happen. So I started climbing the 14ers here in Colorado, the 14,000 foot peaks. And there's one in particular outside Estes Park, Colorado, where I lived. And it's 18 miles round trip, 14,256 feet. And I'll do that. I worked up to this. I did it once a week with 100 pounds of rocks in my backpack. Wow. Right. And I also went up there in bad weather, full knowing and thinking that bad weather in the Rockies is probably better than good weather in the Himalayas. Mm, mm -hmm. I prepared for that. But visually, every single night I went to bed, I would picture myself taking those last four steps on Everest, smelling the ozone, you know, feeling the sun's radiation on my face. The same thing that I learned and I utilized going through the cancers I utilized for, for Mount Everest. But the biggest link that most people forget about, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I I can visualize myself going up there. What did the summit mean to me? How did I feel when I reached the summit? That connects the mind and body. So I was like, every time I went to bed at night, I would cry in my sleep. Like, I'm so emotional. Like, this is awesome. Yes. Yes. That's a piece of visualization that I, I am so glad that you're speaking to because that's that's really where we tap into the power of visualization. It's not just what we see, it's how we feel. And I too have had moments where I'm visualizing something in the future, something I desire, something that I know is going to be so good for me or, or, you know, fill in the blank and I'm crying. And I just, I, as a matter of fact, now that I think about it, I was like, when was the last time that happened? Yesterday, yesterday I was driving, I was running an errand and I was visualizing something that is is just so important to me. And I'm driving and I'm literally getting teary-eyed. And I remember thinking, I was like, it's so funny how powerful our feelings are. They can make us feel great or they can make us feel terrible. But it's in understanding the power of our mind that controls our feelings is where we really, really, really can find our freedom. And it sounds like you, again, learned that at such a young age, but you've carried that through all seven summits, because that is that is your accomplishment of all seven summits, which is rare. <laughs> yeah, the seven summits. And, and I've also realized that every time I've reached the peak, every time I reach the summit of a mountain, there's a, there's always going to be another one to climb. Yeah. You know, when I reach the North Pole, which is a culmination of the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is the seven summits and the two poles, which Explorer's Grand Slam just sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter to me. But <laughs> 
So I was going to get to the top and there's going to be like some hash brown bacon, some eggs hanging out. <laughs> but when you accomplish something, you start thinking about, well, what's next? Mm-hmm. And I realized going through all these journeys, Everest, for example, you know, I spent 30 minutes on the summit. I spent in a month and a half trying to get there. You spend a hundred times longer trying to get to your goal than you do actually at the goal. Mm. So you have to appreciate the process and you have to understand and appreciate what does it mean to you? Like, why are you doing it for a deeper purpose, a deeper reason that will continue to push you forward no matter what obstacles come in your way. So if you have that underlying, for me, I, I call them personal core values. What is that personal core value that I'm reaching for? What does the summit actually mean to me? Peel back those layers, figure it out. And then there you go. Mm. And I think there's so much that we can, we can dive into here. I, you made me think about, um, Hussein Bolt, who said, I trained four years to run nine seconds. Yes. Perfect. And that, right. I I mean that right there and what you just said is something that people, you know, we often give up really quickly, you know, it's too hard or I don't have the finances or fill in the blank of the excuse. And the reality is that most of the destination is actually the journey. Yeah. And, and if people have, I would say, not the right mindset, just a different mindset. A perfect example is the beginning of every year, you write down your, your New Year's resolutions. And I would say 50% of the people start joining gyms. Mm-hmm. They go for the first week, two weeks, three weeks, it starts to go down. And by February, half the people aren't going, but they don't cancel the membership because they feel like they've given up on themselves. But if you have the right mindset of why you're going to the gym, it's not, you're not going to the gym because you hate your body. You're going to the gym because you love your body. And it's a celebration of what your body can do. Yes. <laughs> yes. And if you're doing it because you have a personal core value of health, that will supersede the desire of not going to put yourself through this, this temporary pain of lifting, you'll understand that the deeper reason behind it is your health and your, your longevity and your family. You, you start to link these things together that really will give you the, uh, the, the desire that's an untapped well of inspiration to continue moving. Yes. It, which again is tied to your feelings yes, and, how, and how you see that experience. I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. But before we dive deeper, we're going to hear from one of our partners, and then we'll pick right back up where we left off. Are you ready to supercharge your life and get access to more opportunities than you've ever dreamed of? Then join me, James Whitaker, in the Win the Day Accelerator. Presented by Success, this entire eight-part program has been created to help you activate your winning life once and for all. You'll gain clarity on your goals and purpose. You'll learn how to quickly overcome challenges and you'll get proven tips and frameworks that will deliver you big results fast in all areas of your life. So if you're ready to win, join me in the Win The Day Accelerator. To sign up, visit success.com slash WTD. When we think about things that are hard, a lot of times we think about uh, death, cancer, or any kind of you know life-altering illness, financial hardships. And so you've been through several things before you decided to get to Everest. Once you got to Everest, Sean, was there anything during that climb that really tested your resolve? Oh, absolutely. But before we we talk about that, I want to point out that this is Kilimanjaro behind me. I've been up there 24 times, and I would love to take you up Kilimanjaro (laughs) next year. Oh, you're going to call me out. I'm, I'm oh, calling you out. You know, it's it's a hike. I've taken people from 13 to, to 70 years old. Um, people who say, oh, well, I can't do it. I have exercise-induced asthma. I can't do it because of this. I have one lung. What's your excuse? <laughs> no, I have no excuse. I know I have no excuse. <laughs> Listen, I just got adventurous by trying like paddleboard yoga. I was like, oh, I want to try that. So, okay. I can't say in a year, but I will say that I'll put it on my bucket list. Is, is that right. okay? That's good. I have I have your number. I have your email address. Yes. 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 Okay. I will take you up on that. Listener, right. stay tuned. We'll keep you posted. <laughs> this is going to be edited out, right? <laughs> no, no, no. I need my entire community to hold me to it. They, they're my right. accountability partners. <laughs> All right. All right. I heard that. And this is recorded. It can, like yes. I said, it can be edited. It's recorded, but you know. Um, <laughs> Yes, on Everest. 
there was a section, Camp 3 is on what's called the Lhotse Ice Face, which is literally a, a sheet of ice, like bulletproof ice where you can't chop into it or anything. It, nothing sticks on it um, at a 45 degree angle. And it goes on for a mile. Mm. And I remember being at camp two, looking up at that. And we were stuck in the tent for two days, two nights uh, because of a storm, you know, hurricane force winds. And I, I, I stayed awake for two days and two nights, just holding up the tent because there's what micro that much fabric between me and death, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I had a friend who went up to camp three, right as that storm was blowing through, he couldn't find his tent. So he hopped in someone else's tent. And when you're situating these different camps, you just leave your tents there. So you don't have to carry the extra weight. So he got, he found someone else's tent. It wasn't, no one was there. So he jumped in, no food, no water, two days, two nights, delirious on his way down, misclipped on a guide rope and tumbled over 3000 feet into a crevasse. Oh and gosh. I remember looking up at the mountain and when the sun cleared, I could see where he landed because the snow was red and the streak oh. that he left was sliding into the crevasse. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I have to go by that. My friend just died and how many other countless people die on Mount Everest? And I'm doing the same thing that they're doing. Like, what would make me worthy to pass those dead bodies on my way? Why wouldn't I die? What, what make, what, why would I be worthy enough to make it to the top? Mm -hmm. So that's when the doubts started sinking in. And I went up there at Camp 3 on this, this Lhotse ice face where we chipped down and out and put the tent. And that night, I actually, I, right before bed, I had for dinner... We call them freeze-dried nasties. You know, they actually aren't really that bad, but it was beef stew. So chunks of beef, you know, cubes of beef, cubed carrots, little spiral noodles, and green peas. I remember scarfing that down, sleeping through the night, waking up 10, 11 hours later, and I had like this overwhelming sensation of nausea. And I unzipped the tent as quickly as possible, and I vomited everything out, which reminded me of the cancer that I was going through the, the treatment. Mm -hmm. And I could still see the little green pea, the cubed carrots, the spiral noodles, which meant that my stomach wasn't digesting the food, which meant furthermore that my body was shutting down because of the altitude. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what what I was going to do because we were going to leave that day to go to camp four, rest at camp four, and then go on for the summit. I physically couldn't move, right? I was, uh, my brain was swelling. It's I, I started, started suffering from high altitude cerebral edema, which is essentially altitude induced swelling of the brain. Mm. And the only cure for that is going down an altitude to let that pressure kind of subside. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't move. They couldn't get me down, couldn't do a rescue. So I stayed there that night on oxygen. The next day, woke up and felt 100% better. Now, looking back at it, it was a blessing in disguise because everybody else who moved from camp three to camp four the day I was supposed to on that same schedule because the weather window, you only have like one or two days to climb. The weather window was opening up. So they all left, every other group, um, other expeditions. They pushed for the summit that night bad weather came in, they all retreated off the mountain, they lost their opportunity to climb Everest. Mm. Me back here at camp three, suffered this cerebral edema, sitting there on oxygen, woke up the next day, 100%, 110% better, stormed up to camp four, rested, went up to the summit, made it back. Mm. So it was a blessing in disguise that it happened. So I've, I've also learned that even in the most dire situations, you never know what good might come on the other side. Mm -hmm. There were so many things that you went through, though, moving from camp three to camp four that are relatable to life. The first part, as you mentioned, your friend didn't make it. And a lot of times that's where we stop ourselves because we look at other people's paths. And if they didn't make it, we think, well, why? Why? I can't do that. And why, why would I even try? And then we don't even put forth the effort. But you push through that. And then that second lesson came that I've also experienced this, obviously not on the side of a mountain, but sometimes we do have those moments where we're wondering why aren't things moving forward faster or why do I feel stuck right now? 
And I think that's that space, as you just mentioned, where sometimes we're exactly where we're supposed to be. No, it's, it's, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I also think that self doubt creeps in big time and people don't even realize it. You know, it goes, it goes back to the, the, the first part. We're talking about the internal dialogue. You know, you might not even understand or hear it, mm-hmm. but it's looking up at the guy and, and where he, he died. I'm like, oh my God, like, how am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. And it was very difficult passing that, but also understanding that the self-doubt was going to hold me back. And I, I also realized that going back to what you mentioned how people want things to go faster sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, who you are in the future isn't who you are now. Who I was at Camp 2 looking up there wasn't who I was at, at the summit of Everest. Mm. What's different? It's not the thing. It's not the new, it's not being on the summit. It's not the new car. It's not the new house for some people. It's not the new wife. It's not the new family. It's not the, the double raise in their salary, whatever it might be. It's not the extra money. It's not what's different in me to make that happen. Because I'm not the same person at Camp 2 that I would be on the summit. What is that? What's that difference? Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that self-doubt. It was the confidence. Mm-hmm. How, well, so how can people build that confidence? Like, Is there anything that you had to do practically to really combat the, the self-doubt and the mental exhaustion? Vivid visualization, picture myself on top tapping back into those emotional feelings of, hey, what is it that it means to me? Why does that mean so much to me? Mm-hmm. Then that starts giving me the confidence because I've now understood that when I have, the entire time I was climbing Everest, I had a flag that was about this big that had names of people touched by cancer. Mm-hmm. I had it folded up in my chest pocket every time I went up and down the mountain. Like I said, I was there for a month and a half. And it was always close to my heart as a constant reminder of my goal. So I wasn't trying to make it to the top for me. I was trying to make it to the top for everybody touched by cancer. I wasn't trying to climb up there for myself. I was trying to climb up there for others. Mm -hmm. And I realized that all those names, all those people, they were pushing me up the mountain. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I realized, hey, it's not about the summit. It's about being present, being in the moment, enjoying where I am, enjoying the journey, pushing up to the top. It's about getting those people up there and the deeper purpose behind it. Then I realized whatever is within me, those people, that purpose, that passion, those personal core values that I have, whatever's within me is stronger and bigger than any mountain I'm climbing. Oh my gosh, that is so true. That is so, 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 so true. From from my personal experience and uh, listeners who have been in the community, they know this. For me, it was my son. And just being so determined because hopelessness, it definitely can lead to suicidal thoughts Mm. because when you feel hopeless, then, you know, it's one in the same of you feel like there's nothing worth living for. So that's why those suicidal thoughts can come up. And I remember feeling so determined. Finally, when a little bit of the fog started to uh, lift, I was determined that my son wasn't going to lose both parents. And that would not be his story. So I started to literally fight for my life, even in the moments that felt very hard. And I know sometimes people would ask me, well, what if you don't have a child, right? Who is your North star? And, and for you, it wasn't a child. It was other people who were a part of this greater mission. But what advice would you give to someone who feels like they're not connected to, we'll say just another person that is helping to bring that intrinsic motivation. How can they start to tap into that? How can they start to cultivate that? So they do feel that sense of purpose for whatever mountain they're trying to scale. First of all, I love that you shared what you just did. I don't want to gloss over that. (laughs) So thank you for doing that. Looking at how people might be struggling in my perspective, it's because they lack a sense of purpose, passion, and meaning. And to discover that, you know, how many people, and I, I did this once uh, at, at a giant keynote talk, I was speaking to a few thousand people and I, I stopped and I just asked them by a show of hands, how many people here have actually taken time, not out of their day, not out of their week, but out of their lives to write down your personal core values? Mm. I would mm. say maybe nine or 10 people. I'm like, mm-hmm. you all run corporations. You have corporate values. 
you have these guidelines that you you make decisions based on what is best for the company. How do you not have that for your personal life? Mm-hmm. So as soon as you figure out what you value, what your personal core values are, and I actually, I, I couldn't find anything. So I, I created a, a core value assessment myself. And once you figure out what those personal core values are, you now have a tangible representation of what means most to you to help you make decisions to get that purpose, pa- purpose, passion, and meaning back. Mm-hmm. That's so true. I like to call that our guiding compass. I love it. Our guy. Now, is that something that we can link in the show notes? Want to make sure that if people want to take that assessment, that they would be able to, if they're looking for that. Sure. Yeah. You can go okay. to thebighillchallenge.com. Perfect. We'll make sure that's in the show notes because I know somebody's like, oh, well, I, maybe I need to check in. At least one person is wondering, how have I not defined my core values? And they're going to at least click on that. So that giving them that tool will be really, really helpful. But you're right. I mean, and that's the thing is it doesn't always have to come from a life-changing event. It can just come from you deciding to be more intentional, more thoughtful about what do what do I stand for? What brings me energy? What's important to me? How do I want to show up in the world? How do I want to help others? All of these, you know, they they float around and are are anchored in, if you will, actually your your values. And so, if you don't have that clarity, what direction are you taking your life? Yeah, and and it's interesting to 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 look around the world when you have these values. You you have a a sense of purpose, passion, and meaning. Mm-hmm. How much of the world is an autopilot? Yes. You know, it, it boggles my mind. They wake up and they do the same thing every single day. People say, Oh, I hate my job. I hate that. Well, do two things quit your job and find something else, yeah. or find something that you do like about your job and focus on that. Right. Right. There's always a choice. There's always a choice. Speaking of choices, (laughs) after you conquered Everest, why did you make the choice to go on for all seven summits? I mean, I feel like one is already a huge badge, but you went for seven. What made you decide to press forward and try to complete those? I I wanted to take a flag with names of people touched by cancer on top of each of the seven summits. And I do the same thing to the South Pole and do the same thing for the North Pole. And the North Pole was a culmination of the Explorers Grand Slam that we talked about earlier. And that flag at that time was six and a half feet by four feet, thousands and thousands of names. In fact, there's there's a film on Amazon called True North, the Sean Swarner story. And if you do watch it, my mom still, I've seen it hundreds of times. My mom still makes me tear up. So make sure you have a box of tissue. Okay, thanks for the warning because I'm a crier. Oh, I can't wait to see that. Now you are the embodiment of redefining the impossible, but is there anything that you still find daunting? Anything that's still challenging? Anything that can maybe still grip you with a little bit of fear? Well, I was going to say, like I said earlier, my wife's name is Julissa. She was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And in the Latino community, when you're giving birth, they don't induce labor. They just play salsa music. So bump, bump, you know, they come, it's in their genes. I'm telling you, right? So initially I was a little nervous to dance of all things. I was nervous to dance, but we'll, we'll play music while we're cooking in the kitchen. You know, we'll do some dancing there. But another fear is because if you look at how my life is, you know, a normal, normal life is you go to school, you graduate, you get married, you have a job, you build your, you work, you're at the food chain, you do this, 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 it's in a linear path. Mm-hmm. I went on these adventures. I did all these crazy things. Mm-hmm. Now I'm utilizing everything that I've done to help other people with the lessons I've learned. You know, I've, I almost died on the mountain once I, on Denali, the highest mountain in North America, I slid a hundred feet. I almost died. Mm-hmm. You know, I've lost many people in the mountains, but the lessons that I've learned can help others. So now I've developed a bunch of things and I want to use what I've learned to help other people and I'm just at the infant stage of doing that. So my fear is not failing to reach the summit, but failing to reach my own personal goals that I have set for myself. Mm, again, you know, it's so interesting how we can go through something. So I like to call this confidence checkpoints. Feel free to use it. I hope it's helpful. We can go through something. We can achieve that thing. We can grow through it become better, all of that. And then somehow we forget that we have accomplished something great the next time we are looking to achieve our next goal. 
So I started to write down every win, small, big, you know, things that I've manifested and visualized all of that. I write everything down. My best friend helps me. She's a good mirror to make sure that I am, uh, I'm keeping track of these because the next time I go into something that feels daunting, that feels like, I don't know if this is going to work. And, and I think there's healthy fear, right? There's just like, there's healthy stress, but we don't want it to block us completely from doing the thing that we know our heart is calling to do. So by writing all of those small or big wins down, whenever I feel any self-doubt, I look back at my confidence checkpoints and it fuels me because it reminds me that Karen, if you did that, you can do this. And so I encourage you because I know you're going to reach the top of that summit <laughs> and it's going to be amazing. It's going to help so many people. Don't forget how far you've come. I, I just wrote down confidence checkpoints and, and <laughs> it made me also realize I, I do a lot of coaching too. And I think there are a handful of things that hold people back. I call them the gales, the gremlins, the interpretation, the, the assumptions and the limiting beliefs. And the gremlin is that little voice on your shoulder going, you're not smart enough to do this. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough education. You don't have enough money, whatever it might be. It's always there. But it was there also at some point in your life earlier to help keep you out of trouble, to help keep you safe. So what I've done is I've actually named my gremlin Cooper. Like, listen, Cooper, we're here together to help us all move forward together. So now that I say that out loud, if you see me in, in uh, a, a padded room with a straight jacket on, like he's talking to himself. This guy's crazy, but it, it helps. I will defend you because I do the same thing. I do the same thing. Mine is called Mrs. Trunchbull. Trunchbull? Mrs. Trunchbull from the movie Matilda. She was the mean teacher yes. who was putting everybody in the cubby. And, and sometimes I feel that kind of energy from my gremlins. So I'm like, no, Mrs. Trunchbull, we're not. We're not doing that. Or actually, sometimes it's good to invite that in and say, well, what are you afraid of? What's what's going on here? <laughs> I love it. Miss Trent, I love it. <laughs> we'll be in a padded room together. That's all I'm saying, Sean. <laughs> Steamroller. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, what advice would you give to others? I know you're you're working through this yourself as well, but if someone else has been, you know, facing whether it's an insurmountable kind of challenge or maybe it is a health-related issue. What advice would you be, would you give to that person? Look at your daily patterns, your daily habits, your daily routine. Find, first of all, don't think it's going to be cured overnight. It doesn't happen that way. You Good know? point. Yeah. The same way I got to Everest, the summit of Everest, one step at a time. So look at your habits, look at your patterns, look at your daily routine and find the one thing that has the most control over you that wastes your time, that you just gets you nowhere, eliminate it and replace it with something positive. For most people, it's literally mindlessly scrolling on Instagram or mindlessly scrolling. If you're looking for something great, use it. Don't have it use you. Mm. So replace it with something that is positive. And only you can figure that out, but figure it out based on your personal core values. Mm -hmm. Just by replacing something that's draining your energy with something that's giving you good energy can completely change your perspective and how you interact with life. It's, it's mm -hmm. you, you wake up in the morning and you have a certain amount of energy and pretend like everything that you're doing is either like, it's, it's like a, an energy ATM, right? Are you depositing or are you taking out? Mm hmm. And as you said in the previous show, you cannot pour from an empty cup, which I know is something we've all heard before, but like, have you really stopped to take inventory of what's draining your cup? Because just doing that alone can help to refuel you. <laughs> right. You know, I'm guilty of it too. On Saturday, all of a sudden, you know, I get back from uh, a long hike or a training trip and all of a sudden I'm sitting there and five hours have gone by, I've binged on something on Netflix and I ate an entire bag of potato chips. <laughs> It happens. Don't. It does. It does. <laughs> but don't beat yourself up over it. Just move on. Exactly. Well, I want to give some time to talk about the Cancer Climber Association. I know that this is something that's really near and dear to your heart. Tell us about the core mission. The, the core mission is right there. Kilimanjaro. So we actually pay for all costs covered, a survivor, and anybody can go on the trip, but we find a survivor every year and pay for that survivor. 
entire cost covered, but then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor. So it's really cool putting those two people in touch with one another. One person comes off the mountain, talks with somebody who's scared about going up, but then not only do they talk about the mountain journey, they talk about their own cancer journey, which is just, Mm -hmm. it's unbelievable to see that connection. That's beautiful. And how can others support the Cancer Climber Association? I really want to make sure that, you know, anybody who, especially because I know my network, we are a group of people who are all about helping one another. We realize the impact of a positive ripple effect. So how can others maybe who are not cancer survivors help to support the Cancer Climber Association? Appreciate that. And as opposed to giving people so many different websites like cancerclimber.org. The best place is just go to seanswarner.com. Everything's there and then you can find it, find everything else. Great. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I have a couple of rapid fire questions that I want to get through with you. So if there are any last parting words before we get into this for someone who is finding themselves at the beginning of a long journey, what would you share with that person? realize that that journey begins with the first step. You know, it was a Sao, Sao, whatever, who I forget his name off the top of my head. He said that, you know, the the longest journey begins with that first step, but realize that the first step is never your last. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. All right. Well, quick rapid fire. We were talking about what fills our cup. And I'm curious when you think about self-care or what fills your cup, what is that for you? Well, it's not the Netflix binging and the potato chips. <laughs> That's gone. What fills my cup is giving back, knowing I'm helping other people. You know, I've I've been there. I've done that. The reason I've I've gone up Kilimanjaro now 24 times isn't because I pushed myself and challenged myself. Can I make it? No, I can make it. Mm-hmm. I love seeing, it's very similar to Christmas. I don't need anything. I love seeing other people's faces light up. So when I get them to the top of, of, Kilimanjaro, they come up and they're, they're, everyone's in tears. They, the waterworks is on. They hug me. They're like, thank you so much for getting me here. I'm like, I didn't get you here. Mm, I just supported you on your journey to get yes. Oh, I love that. Okay. What's one mistake that you've learned in any of your hikes? <laughs> on any of my hikes, proverbial or literal? I'm going to ask for you to decide which one you'd like to share. D all the above. So (laughs) (laughs) on, on, in the mountains, I've realized that when I stray off the path on Everest, Denali, Elbrus, Aconcagua, there were a few places where if I literally took a step six inches off to one side, I would plummet down a mile and a half to my death, Mm -hmm. which kind of relates back to being focused in real life having those guidelines in place. You know, again, going back to Kilimanjaro, the average success rate on the mountain is 48%. My group's at 99% success rate. And I think it's because I'm not out there with my ego saying, follow me, blazing the trail. I lead from behind, encouraging people to go out and explore. But if they start to stray off the path, I'm there to make sure they don't fall off the mountain, but I'm also there to help them stay on the path. So I've learned to stay on the path, utilize my personal core values and focus on where I want to go, not avoid where I don't want to go. Well, thankfully you learned that mistake before it became a (laughs) fatal mistake. (laughs) Good one to share. Good one to share. If you had a magic wand and you could bring anything or any person or any opportunity your way, what would it be? That could go financially, that could go family. Right now, the very first thing that that popped in my mind was I'd like to spend one more dinner with my grandpa. Yeah. I love that. Do you meditate? I do. I, I actually, every morning do 30 minutes of yoga where I do some meditation. And then during the day I take 15 minutes and I just sit and breathe. I turn off everything and I'm like, this is me time. I'm filling back up my cup. Yes. I ask that question of all my guests because I've noticed a trend for people who are very intentional about how they live and how they work. They always carve out that time to be with themselves. And during that time, they strengthen the relationship with themselves. So that's more more of a data point than a rapid fire question. (laughs) And then last question, 
all expenses paid vacation to anywhere in the world. Where are you going and who are you bringing with you? Well, I would bring my wife. Mm -hmm. And right now, if I could just poof, be there. Yep. There are so many places because, you know, like when you when you put your TV on pause or when your computer goes on on its uh, screen like mode, yeah, yeah, and I see those amazing pictures, I'm like, where is that? And I boop, and I save it on my Google Map. I'm like, I want to go there, and I have so many green marks on my map. Mm. I would say the Seychelles, the Maldives, mm -hmm. as a, as a just a, a getaway. But there's also a tiny island where a boat goes to only once a week. It's the most remote place in the world. I'd, lo I'd love to go check it out. Yes. Oh, amazing. Well, I knew it'd be some sort of adventurous. <laughs> That's wonderful. Sean, thank you so much for spending even more time with us and really providing additional context around your life experiences, but how that can be applied to all of our life experiences. I appreciate you and I honor you. And I thank you so much for being willing to share this with so many people. Oh, well, thank you for giving, giving myself and other people the platform to do so. You know, we, we all have a story. And so, so many times people are afraid to be vulnerable and open and share that story, but through story is connection. And with connection, we all remain human. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you, friend. We'll make sure that all of the links that we discussed in this show and also in the first episode are linked in the show description. Thanks again. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcast. 